Thousands of people seeking home security get ripped off every day. You get locked into long-term contracts, stuck writing huge checks with no way out. Now there's a smarter way to protect your home. Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe has no contracts. There's no commitment, no lock-ins, period. These are the guys we trust. And right now, Simply Safe is having its biggest ever summer sale. $100 off the special safeguard package. Visit simplysafe.com slash ringer to get this deal. Hurry, because this sale ends soon. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash ringer. And if you own sunglasses, you know scratches happen. With Revent Optics, you can replace your lenses and save your sunglasses. Revent Optics offers high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses for any brand, starting at just $24 a pair. They're crystal clear, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. So go to reventoptics.com MLB, that's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com MLB, today and get 20% off your first pair of lenses with offer code MLB. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, and I'm joined, as always, by Michael Bauman, my colleague. Hello, Michael. Hey, we got some rotator cuff news this week. Oh, always the best news. Yeah, Nikki Six of Motley Crue is having his rotator cuff repaired, making him the first non-pitcher I've ever seen it announced that he was having rotator cuff surgery. Yeah, I guess that would be less debilitating. For for a bassist, would that be? Uh, do you miss time? Do you have to go? Do you have to take imagine. time off from your I don't tour? Know. Like, I don't know what the because you don't have to rotate too much to play bass, well, right? Not, I mean, not the way I play bass. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're windmilling, then <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, I'm just thinking about like you know, it's more of a wrist and elbow action uh, right. guitar for me, but I don't play as loud as Nikki Six does. That's for no, for yeah, you think it would be the opposite of baseball, right? Because in baseball, shoulder is what you least want to have, but you would think that. Almost anything else would be worse for a, a bassist. You wouldn't want to have an elbow problem. You definitely no. wouldn't want to have a, a hand to finger problem. Uh, well, we should track and uh, see what the estimated see recovery the, yeah. time for a, <laughs> a rock bassist is for rotator cuff yeah. surgery. I always wonder, like with pitchers with blister problems, like make them play, make them play mandolin with their non-dominant hand, and that'll just build up. Like I, I had indestructible calluses when I was playing a lot of mandolin. Yeah, well, that is what Rich Hill said recently, right? His solution to the blister epidemic is just throw a lot more with this baseball, which might be different. But I thought his solution was to pee on his hands. Well, that has been some people's solutions over the years. So yeah. Okay. Second thing. I just think it's notable that the Phillies shut out the Astros nine to nothing, which will <laughs> do wonders for both of their run differentials. You know, you yeah, can't predict Aaron baseball. Nola, right? Yeah, Aaron Nola is really good. Like when he's yes. when he's healthy, he's really, really good. Phillies also benefited from an amazing inside the park grand slam by JP Crawford. Yeah, I saw that. Did you see the video? He, so he's dead to rights about 20 feet from the plate and he just walks up to the catcher and like hits the deck and <laughs> sticks his foot between the catcher's yeah. legs. I've never seen a slide quite like that. So you should yeah. go. I don't know if I can even give him credit for that. Like it's not it's not one of the slides where you do something unusual to avoid the tag. It was more like he just collapsed and the catcher failed to apply the tag. He, he, he got <laughs> down the, before before the catcher yeah, did. He wasn't anticipating such an ungraceful slide, I guess. Yeah, it was just last week, right, that you were saying that you were 
you were in favor of replay on the bases because you wanted to encourage creative slides. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. That is the the saving grace of it, I think. But that's, that's nice because JP Crawford needs all the home runs he can get, whether they are misplayed balls with weird slides or not. All right. Third thing, I'm sending you a tweet from the Cardinals Twitter account. Oh, it's about okay. my man, Paul DeYoung, who right. I covered when he was at Illinois State. He wanted to he wanted to be a doctor when he first got to college. <laughs> he, and then it turns out like he's just gotten better and better at baseball, turned into a, a good mid-major college baseball player, and then was a second-day pick and now can suddenly play shortstop. Wow. Anyway, the tweet is, that was at real Paul DeYoung's eighth home run this month, a new rookie record for the hashtag... STL cards franchise in the month of July. Is that a new rookie record for most qualifiers in a fun fact? <laughs> it's not great. Yeah. I mean, when you have rookie record and the month and the franchise and the franchise. Yeah, that's a little suspect. It's still impressive to have eight home runs in a, a month for for anyone, really, particularly yeah. for Paul DeYoung. So congrats to him. But yeah, you have to be on your guard when you see a, at least that many, what, three qualifiers. That's that's a warning sign. Yeah, particularly because there there were more fun, fun facts floating around. There's like there's some way that you could sort the Cardinals rookie home run leaderboard to just get him and Albert Pujols on it. And yeah. Like, you know, if you got that, I don't know what you're doing with. What are you doing with this? It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> All right. Should we get to our guest? Yep. Okay. So we have talked to Jay Jaffe of Sports Illustrated a couple times before on this podcast at the predictable times of year when he makes the rounds talking about the Hall of Fame. That's when the new ballot is out, when people are actually getting inducted. And now he's back because he has a book about the Hall of Fame. It's called the Cooperstown Casebook. Who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Who should be in and who should pack their plaques? It is out now and I'm holding a copy of it in my hands. Jay, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. It's always fun to talk to you guys about the Hall of Fame stuff. Yeah. So I'm curious about what you're going to do going forward, because you do kind of rewrite things every year when it comes to be that time of year. And you'll write the essay about the guys who are on the ballot year after year. And now you have a book and you have answered all those questions. <laughs> Can you just be like, buy the book? It's buy all the in there. Here's well, a link. You know, the great thing about the Hall of Fame discussion is it's a renewable resource. <laughs> um, you know, this, the, this circus comes to town every year and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we get a new ballot out, we get a new set of inductees. You know, I, somebody asked me the other day, if my, if my book settles all debates, hell no. Yeah. You know, I'd be sad if it did, because that would mean, uh, uh nobody cared anymore about the hall of fame. Well, it means and, you can't write the sequel and yeah, well, and I, you know, and I, I, I do want to write the sequel. I've got ideas for the sequel here. So. No, I I, uh, I think there there are candidates whose cases will continue to evolve. I mean, if nothing else, uh, another year of uh, of balloting means another another chance to uh, look at the trends that are that they're traveling along and what their prospects for election are. I mean, the, the candidates' credentials don't change, but our understanding of them may change a little bit. You know, both uh, with new tools and with uh, relative to our understanding of the other Hall of Famers. Now that uh, Jeff Bagwell and Tim Raines and Punch Rodriguez are in, we've got that many more guys to to measure future candidates against, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how 
how they affect uh, what comes after them. Right. The three guys you mentioned going in this weekend, Bagwell, Reigns, and Rodriguez, and then also John Sherholtz. And yes, Bud Selig will be entering the Hall of Fame this weekend also. So a few of those guys, of course, have been sabermetric celebrities, and, and they've been people that we've argued about and debated about for years now and have been on the ballot too long. And Von Rodriguez, I think, surprised me with how little time he spent on the ballot, although I think he was deserving too. But since you brought up the fact that the debates persist, I was going to ask you about that later, but I might as well ask you about it now because the last eight words in your book are the debates over who belongs will never end. And I I wonder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think that will always be the case? Because starting now, starting a couple of years ago, we have better data on these players than we have ever had. And and your book, of course, features heavily your system, Jaws, which is, you know, a blend of, of peak war and and career war and with some other adjustments built in. So that is a, a pretty good handle on how much value a guy contributed. But of course, you know, defensive stats aren't perfect and you go back in time and they get even less perfect. And then there's lots of context and there's postseason and there's personality considerations. There's also of stuff that you can bring into it. But with guys who started their careers 2015 or later, the StatCast era, we have just this wealth of information on them that we have never had before. And fast forward 10, 20 years, whatever the war equivalent of that time is, we'll probably be baking in StatCast data that is much more precise than anything we have had or had now or have now. So do you think there will come up point where the debates just aren't interesting anymore because there will be a threshold where we can say with some certainty this guy was worth x and if he's worth more than x then he's in no because i because it's never going to be just a numerical question you know i somebody uh i was doing the burgino clubhouse today for a book event and uh the host uh jay goldberg put her, pointed out that there's that aside from various uh uh, statistical definitions. There's one bold face line in the book, uh, and that comes uh, pretty early on. And it's about how Jaws is not uh, intended to be a metric for a binary yes/no answer on on Hall of Fame worthiness, where somebody who's below the bar shouldn't get in. I advocate bringing context to this and considering the other impact uh, that a player had, both you know postseason and and uh, you know, awards, historical importance, anything else you can bring to it. Let's talk about it, but let's talk about it having first established how good this player was uh, in light of the value that, you know, that we could estimate here and how that compares. So, you know, maybe, maybe Joss is about 80% of the equation and the other stuff is 20%. Maybe it's, you know, whatever you can attach a certain weight to it, uh, however you want. That's kind of how I look at it in my mind. That's about 75, 80% is the objective that we know. And then there's, there still leaves you a fair amount of room to, uh, to make those other arguments, but uh, people will still care about this. stuff. We're not all going to always see this be on the same page because there are fans that out there who've probably never heard of StatCast right now, mm-hmm. you know, or who you know may have heard of it, but they don't know it. They don't care about it. They don't care about wins above replacement. They don't have to, it's not a mandatory requirement to, to appreciate baseball, but you know, if you want to have an informed discussion about the Hall of Fame, I think you know the the path is going to lead you there. And uh, you know, I've I've uh, done my done my share to try to make it that way over the last uh, 13, 14 years to bring to bring that into discussion. But I, it's never we're never going to stop to the point where it's just a uh, a math a math problem about who gets in the Hall of Fame. 
So has that debate changed? I guess I'm I'm interested in a question that was actually the title of the introduction, why care about the Hall of Fame? Because that was something that I think a lot of people were sort of struggling with in the, the year that there was the blank ballot and the mm-hmm. seemingly endless Jack Morris debates. Like this just stopped being fun. And I think there was, you know, there was a, a growing movement that I think has sort of died down to younger stat savvier fans and analysts to sort of decrease the importance of of the Hall of Fame in, in our own minds. And how has the, the debate evolved as we've started bringing statistics into it, as the BBWA has changed, as voters' views on, on PEDs have changed? Is it more fun now? Is it less fun now? Is it less ugly than it was maybe five years ago? Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's getting better over the last, maybe I would say three or four years. Um, 2013 was a shit show, you know, uh, with the, 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 the steroids guys and the, uh, and the Jack Morris question still hanging in the balance. I think that was probably the least fun I've ever had uh, with uh, with a Hall of Fame election cycle, and I'm sure others would would feel, would feel the same way. But you know, I mean, I, as I say in the book, I do care because I understand that if you're a baseball fan, you have strong opinions about the Hall of Fame. Your strong opinion may be, I don't, you know, give a rat's ass about it, but that's fine. But most fans do have some feeling about the Hall of Fame, some passion about it, whether it's, uh, uh, I think, you know, this guy should be in, or I think this guy shouldn't be, shouldn't be in or, or, uh, whatever they want their experience validated. You know, I saw, uh, Hall of Famer X play, you know, when I was growing up and, and I thought he was the bee's knees then. And, and, uh, I want to see him recognize, you know, in some ways that's kind of what brought me to it. It was, was, uh, appreciating through the advanced stats, what, uh, what remarkable candidates say Burt Blylevin and, and, and Tim Raines were, you know, to some, some of my favorites growing up. I'm like, Oh, wow. You know, and, and I've got these numbers that uh, actually say something about that. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, that passion is, to me, is why the is why the Hall of Fame matters and why it's important to keep it relevant in the 21st century. Because you know, we have the opportunity to uh, to win new fans uh, over every day, every year. And what's in the Hall of Fame right now? Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. That's not going to last forever. I mean, those those plaques are going to be in there forever, but that's not going to drive attendance forever because the 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 number of people who have firsthand experience with those players is getting fewer and fewer. We want to have uh, more modern players in there that that fans can connect to and uh, uh, maintain that passion. So I I want to follow up with a question about your part in the debate. And you know, you created Jaws more than a decade ago. When did you? realized that you had become like the hall of fame guy. And was that something that you had, you know, ever thought about before it actually happened? You know, well, yeah, I don't know that there was a single day where it's like, Oh, okay. Um, but it was kind of gradual. I mean, I got to talk, you know, I, the first discussion for a book was came from Christina Carl at baseball prospectus, who suggested I start thinking about someday getting to do this. And, uh, her and her and Steve Goldman, and it was uh, it was uh, while we were touring on one of the baseball prospectus annuals, and I was like, really, okay. Um, so like, yeah, you you know you want to you know establish your authority in this area, uh, you got to do a book, all right. But you know it was it was gradual. I mean, I, I decided uh, even in 2010 when BP wanted me to do a book that it wasn't really my time yet. And things started happening pretty quickly for me. Or, you know, maybe, maybe not so quickly, but they started happening for me in a way that uh, was a logical progression. Getting on MLB Network's uh, Clubhouse Confidential in late 2011 on a regular basis, jumping from BP to, S- to Sports Illustrated in, in uh, early 2012, uh, introducing uh, the uh, 
Winds Above Replacement flavored version of Jaws on Baseball Reference, uh, also in 2012. It had been using the Baseball Prospectus version of Winds Above Replacement Player, and I decided it was time to move on from that to expand the metrics reach. You know, I think really it was it was after that happened, after that, you know, when people could see me on TV, could find my metric on on uh, uh, the greatest website on earth, that it really really started to maybe uh, have a greater impact. It, it increased my audience exponentially, and uh, you know, actual writers. I think it was a maybe oh I, one one day maybe 2013, like Joe Posnanski mentioned my stuff in one of his columns, and I was like, oh wow, okay. You know, if Joe Posnanski is paying attention, he's not the only one because he's pretty big. And suddenly I realized like, all right, this is, I'm actually getting somewhere here because I'm reaching people that, uh, uh, that I find interesting and, and, uh, they apparently find my, my stuff interesting too. So I think there's maybe a, a misconception or, or an exaggerated perception of how bad the writers have been historically at, at voting players in, because I think they have mostly found the mark and a lot of the worst selections to the hall of fame have been cronyism. And you have a whole chapter about that in the veterans committee and, and kind of the, the backdoor ways of, I could of do the last 30 the minutes of, of this podcast on, on that. <laughs> yeah, if if yeah, we right. don't mind moving on to anything else. Yeah. Well, yeah. so what I was going to ask, you know, I think people, Maybe because of certain cases that have caused a lot of debate, think, oh, Hall of Fame voting is terrible and they're leaving out all these deserving players. But if you look at the writers' votes, I don't think that's really the case. There are certain guys who have slipped through, but the misses are are not that numerous. But the subtitle says who should be in and, and who should not, essentially. So if you could just reshape the Hall of Fame according to Jaws or, or whatever combination of, mm-hmm. of Jaws and personal knowledge that you would use here, can you give us some ballpark estimate of how that would reshape the number mm-hmm. of people in the Hall of Fame? Like, would it be a lot fewer, a lot more? How, no, I think how would I would, that change I, I the think numbers? I would, aim, I would start by aiming for something that's maybe of similar size, but maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit more generous to players of the last uh few decades when i researched uh historical levels of representation yeah you know first on my own and then uh, as part of the bbwa ballot study committee in uh 2014 and, and 15 i found that uh even going back to 1990 uh, 1969 on the writers had not been doing a, uh, had not been keeping pace with the with the rate of expansion um and right. had been underrepresenting the, those eras in the Hall of Fame, and you know that ultimately that's why you've got so many guys from the seventies and eighties in my book. I mean, Ted Simmons, Lou Whitaker, Alan Trammell, and Bobby Gritch are four guys that I write about extensively in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would want to get those guys in. I want to take out some of the Frankie Fresh veterans committee mistakes from the twenties, and you know, the uh, players from the twenties and thirties who had short careers and and uh, inflated offensive numbers because of the scoring environment. You know there aren't a lot of 19th century guys that I think we need to put in. There may be a couple I would I would probably punt on now. But when I used that subtitle, which actually came from another BP member colleague, uh, Derek Jacques, all the way back in 2007. You know when this book was still just a twinkle in my eye, and the part about who should pack their plaques. Well, it turns out that's kind of a red herring because I wanted to actually go in and understand why these guys are in and maybe joke about packing their plaques, but uh, I'm not explicitly saying throw these guys out on the street, they're bums. Uh, they mm-hmm. exist somewhere on the spectrum from very, very good to legitimately great and understanding who they are, how they got in, why they got in, and what they brought to baseball history I think is more important than uh, some kind of symbolic gesture 
saying, yes, I would throw this bum out. So, you know, I would like, if I, if given the opportunity to reshape it, yeah, there's probably, you know, a couple dozen guys that I wouldn't include there, but I think it's more important. I, I want to focus on the guys that, uh, uh, that are on the outside looking in that I think should be there. And, uh, you know, some of whom are on the current ballots, uh, like Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker, and some of whom are from the more distant past, like Minnie Minoso and Dick Allen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Minnie Minoso is maybe the the guy you make the most impassioned case for, or or thorough case. Do you want to to give that case because sure. just purely looking at the stats, he might not be quite as strong a candidate as as some other guys who you've already mentioned. Yeah, Minoso was um, the first. He was a pioneering Black uh, Latin American ball player whose career was uh, the start of his major league career was delayed by the Negro Leagues. And then he was kind of stuck in the Indian system uh, because they had so much talent. This is in the late 40s. And it really wasn't until he was traded to the White Sox that he got the chance to play. And once he did, he emerged as one of the best players in the American League. This is really from 1951 to about 1961. Uh, he had an 11-year run there where he was uh, one of the best players in the American League. Didn't hit for a ton of power, never had uh, more than uh, 24 homers. Stolen bases weren't really in vogue, but he led the league a few times uh, with totals in the 20s and 30s. But uh, high on-base percentages, high like OPS+, plus, good wins above replacement scores was was frequently regularly in the in the top 10 and uh top five and uh even led his league one year and was just a a, a fantastic dynamic ball player that uh caught a lot of people's eye and he battled battled a lot of prejudice and uh, uh ultimately what happened is he you know his his career kind of petered out in the in the mid 60s uh his last few years were a lot of injuries uh, and a lot of changing teams but then he came back in the in the in 1976 and then again in 1980 uh, as a coach and a pinch hitter for the Bill Veck owned White Sox who you know he had Veck had uh, had him originally in Cleveland uh and then uh in Chicago and you know he was he was a favorite uh of uh Vecks. but uh those token appearances reset uh Minoso's eligibility clock with the 5 year waiting periods and he really never got a fair shake from the writers. I mean, he did 15 years on the ballot, but those 15 years were so far removed from his peak. Uh, we're talking like 1986 to 99 was most of his run that uh, nobody who'd really seen him at his best or very few people who'd seen him at his best were, were around. And uh, he came close to the veterans committee a few years ago. Uh, there's an underlying question about how old he is. There's any one of four different years that he could have been born in the twenties. And that has an impact on how we appreciate his career. Now the best understanding is he probably came to the major leagues. He was a regular he didn't get to play regularly until he was 25, but he was a star in the Negro Leagues much earlier than that. He probably could have at least held his own in the major leagues and, and, and really compiled some strong career stats. So, you know, he may have lost, a few, he definitely lost a few years uh, of regular play. You have to think about that. You know, it's his jaws, his jaws numbers are not uh, strictly above the bar, but you can't uh, be strict about it when uh, a guy lost prime years to, uh, to the color line. You know, and that's the story I tried to tell with uh, that chapter. It might be the longest of the profiles. His or Dick Allen's are probably mm. the, the two longest uh, uh, of the uh, of the case studies in the book. Yeah, and Dick Allen's is also excerpted at Baseball Prospectus right yes. now. If you want to go read that, there's also excerpts on Fangraphs and Sports Illustrated too. So, what do you do with those? I mean, guys who get blocked, or you know, they're 
you know, there are gaps in the statistical record for one reason or another. It doesn't have to be something as insidious as the the color line. Like, you know, I, but I remember Bill James putting it in like he gives Joe DiMaggio credit for the years he lost to military service because he was a great ball player, but just was prevented from playing in the major leagues from by circumstances he couldn't control, sure. uh, as opposed to somebody who I think we talked about last year, Chase Utley, who just was a late bloomer and took a, a long time to get to the point where he was a major league regular, and that'll probably keep him out of the Hall of Fame eventually. So do you is that sort of where you land as well, or or do you are these cases few enough that you could sort of go case by case on it? Well, I think you you need to look at those guys, and and you know, I mean, Joe DiMaggio. He's in the Hall of Fame. Nobody's kicking him out. I mean, yes, we need to recognize that he lost time. If you were talking about a, a, a strict ranking system, you know, I I published the Jaws rankings of these guys. I ordered them by the Jaws rankings in this book, and we're relevant. You know, I spend some time thinking about where guys might have landed, but I don't do that for every single guy uh, who missed time due to military service or the color line. Uh, I do it in, I would say, in, in in many of those cases. Though I don't remember where I, whether I did it in Dimaggio's case. I have a certain, I don't know, I, I, I'm not in awe of Joe DiMaggio uh, the way that I think uh, some people are. I feel like I'm not either. Yeah, I feel and like I, I, know, I, know way, I know way too much about Joe DiMaggio's personal life and his <laughs> insistence on being called the greatest living ball player when Willie Mays was just sitting right there, man. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, so maybe I didn't tackle the Joe DiMaggio question. But, you know, I talk about it in the context of, say, Pee Wee Reese, uh, with mil- who missed time because of military service, or Mickey Cochran, who uh, whose uh, career was cut short by by a beaning, uh, or things like that. You know, I did want to, I do want to try to appreciate that. But you know, in a lot of cases, we're talking about guys who are already in the Hall of Fame, and I don't need to put together a, to make this like my final ranking, like it's the Bill James historical abstract to say this guy is definitively the number two third base of all time. It's no, this guy ranks third in Jaws at the position. You know, you can adjust up or down based on these other criteria that, that we bring to the discussion, but I'm not going to tell you how far you need to adjust them up or down. They're in the Hall of Fame. They're, for comparative purposes, uh, the Jaws ranking will suffice. You know, when you're talking about uh, candidate, you position them relative to those guys, and you, uh, you know, you're making other adjustments anyway, but you might say, you know, this guy's sixth in Jaws among first basemen, second among uh, post-war first baseman only to Albert Pujols. I'm talking about Jack Bagwell here, you know, and and uh, you've got that, and you you know you you don't need to sweat whether he's actually the seventh best. Really, you just know that he's the above average candidate relative to the Hall of Fame, and that should be enough to to fill him in on your ballot. And uh, uh, we can debate uh, the rest of it uh, another time. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick break so we can tell you about one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more from Jay about the Hall of Fame and the Cooperstown Casebook. Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratch lenses? You either throw them into a junk drawer or you're still wearing them, squinting through the scratches. Thanks to Revent Optics, you no longer have to live with those scratches or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses. Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand name sunglasses. And because they test their lenses to ensure razor-sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. 
Rivet lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. And if you can't find your sunglasses listed on their website, Revit Optics can cut custom lenses for you at their lab in Portland, Oregon. So join over 500,000 customers and try them risk-free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use the offer code MLB. Go to RevantOptics.com slash MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T Optics.com slash MLB. RevantOptics.com. Replace your lenses. Save your sunglasses. Adrian Beltre is about to reach 3,000 hits. He's playing the Orioles this weekend, so he might blow by 3,000 hits. And I think everyone accepts that Beltre is a Hall of Famer, no matter how you evaluate who is a Hall of Famer. But you devote a whole chapter to the the third base problem in the Hall of Fame. So could you summarize what happened, why third basemen have gotten excluded from the Hall of Fame so often for for people who aren't aware of that? Yeah, and that was that was actually the chapter that, that, that got me the book deal uh, was the, mm. the Ron Santo chapter. And it is basically what it comes down to is uh, it took until 1945 for the first third baseman to get elected. This is uh, the 10th year of elections here. Uh, that was Jimmy Collins elected by the old timers committee. It took until 1948 for the BBWA to elect uh, the first third, their first third baseman. That was, that was pie trainer. Uh, it took nearly another 30 years for each body to, to elect another one. Fred Lindstrom in 76 by the veterans committee. Eddie Matthews in 1978 by the BBWA. This is a guy who retired with 512 home runs and was like, you know, top five or top six all time at that point. It took him five years to get in. Why? And that's the dumbest thing. In the, you know, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, at least as far as you know, the Hall of Fame goes. Um, and, you know, what I and ultimately, you know, Ron Santo got got short shrift. And that's really, you know, where the emotional pull of the story is. And, and this is a guy who didn't, you know, was a perennial all-star, won some gold gloves and, uh, you know, had his career cut short by diabetes, type 1 diabetes, which he kept a secret for the first portion of his career because he was worried that uh, uh, they wouldn't let him play. He was, he fell short of 5% in his first year on the ballot in 1980. It took a, uh, a lobbying effort to restore him and a bunch of other players, including Dick Allen, uh, who had similarly been been wronged uh, to the ballot in 1985. Uh, he persisted on the ballot for the rest of his 15-year uh, uh, span of eligibility, but never came close to election. He was on Veterans Committee uh, ballots in various forms and usually was you know, one of the top two vote-getters, but uh, still didn't get anywhere close to 75%. And finally got in in, in 2012, the year after he died. And that's just, that's just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and really, I think when it comes down to third baseman, to me, I think it's a problem that they're, they're right in the middle there in terms of they have, uh, uh, they're expected to provide kind of, you know, power hitting offense, you know, have, like a certain amount of heft to their offensive contribution and a certain amount of heft to their defensive contribution. And it's tough to weight both of those things. It's tough to recognize both of those things when all you've got is a batting line and a reputation. And so we've only got 13 third basemen in the hall, including uh, Paul Molitor, who spent more of his time as a DH. That's the fewest at any position. I think it's tied with catchers, or maybe catchers just moved ahead with Pudge going in. Just talking about the major leaguers, not including the Negro leaguers here, because I didn't consider them in, in, uh, at all for this book, because uh, I don't have the numbers to count them with. And certainly worth the time to do it. At 464 pages, I did not didn't have the space to do it. Beltre, I think, is lucky because he's going to have the offensive milestones. You know, 300, 3,000 hits, 
400 home runs, maybe even 500 home runs when it's all said and done. You know, if he plays uh, past his current contract, which ends in his age 39 season, he's still playing very well. He's just, but he missed the first two months of this year because of a calf strain. He's going to have those offensive numbers, and he's also going to have. Uh, the most modern defensive metrics that we could that we could summon. He's got defensive runs saved for days. He's got the second best uh, defensive total uh, of all time uh, at third base, behind only Brooks Robinson. He's got some Gold Gloves. He's got some Platinum Gloves. He's got a Wilson Defensive Player of the Year award. He's got the Fielding Bile Award. I think we all agree he was a great fielder and a great fielder mm-hmm. with those kind of offensive milestones to his credit uh, is pretty much a slam dunk Hall of Famer. So. I'm not worried too much about Adrian Belcher, but it is interesting how much how it took playing in in, uh, in Texas in this hitter friendly environment uh, with a generally contending team for pe- for this really to sink in because he had played in pitcher sparks for the first half of his career and didn't put up good offensive numbers, you know, and nobody really cared. And, and in some ways, he was thought of as a disappointment because he never lived up to that big 48 home run, mm-hmm. you know, 2004 walk year that. Uh, you know, the Mariners certainly hoped he could he could replicate when they signed him to that first free agent deal. He's a weird case just because, and we were just talking about him uh, off the air before um, before we started recording. But he, I mean, he had that great walk year, and then right when you get into his prime, he was good. He was like a between a three and a five one player for for four years. And then he goes to Boston, and he goes to Texas, and puts up three seven win seasons. Three of his first five years after leaving Seattle, and like all of this, it, like it feels like he. Declined and then just sort of stayed at age 34 for about 10 (laughs) years. And, you know, I'm having a hard time thinking of another guy like he's just sort of jumped from a guy that I thought we were going to have to get mad about, like a Tim Raines type to Mm -hmm. just, you know, really non-controversial case over the past couple of years. And I struggle to think of another guy who had that sort of career arc. Yeah, that's a that's a a good point. I mean, you know, the I think some people will it's like it's tempting to sort of think of a, a a PED type case where those guys seem to have, yeah, I should say, a, apart a, from a, that, a, yeah. you know, infinite longevity. I mean, Barry Bonds comes to mind there. Not that he was going to be controversial before then, because this guy would have been a Hall of Famer if he'd retired in 1998. But yeah, it's a very interesting pattern, and there are not a lot of guys who who have provided that kind of value late in their careers. And and you know, it's and it's not just the it's not just about the numbers for Beltre anymore either. It's he's become like a beloved elder statesman in the game, somebody who's like a social media favorite too, because you've got not just the defensive wizardry, but you've got those just amazing home runs hit on when he's down on one knee. And then you've got the silliness of, of him, yeah, uh, the, the head rubbing thing and just the, the expressiveness of his, of, of his face. I was looking at uh, uh, some, you know, some, some clips that were, that were tweeted out, you know, by, uh, by various people over, over, the last few months and uh you know this guy's legitimate like he's he's like bartolo Colon. he's just a social media favorite who's got uh, uh all this stuff going in his favor it's really kind of nice to see it all come together for him yeah i mean i was gonna make a crack about about elvis andrews getting him into, into the hall of fame but he's <laughs> i mean beltrace the player that ever that beltrace the player that old people think brooks robinson was yeah yeah i think that's that's reasonably fair to say you know, Robinson was a was a good hitter, not a great hitter. Uh, Belcher is a better hitter than than Robinson by far, and you know, Robinson better defender, played on more winning teams, but uh, 
it's a very that's a very interesting comparison. So I know that you were very well versed in the Hall of Fame before you really started working on this book in earnest, but I'm sure that during the research you've come across things that even you didn't know. Was there a particular player who is in the hall who you gained a greater appreciation for oh God, while I you mean, were working on dozens this? And dozens. I, there were probably fifty guys that I knew almost nothing besides name position and, and maybe a few teams that they played on. And, and that, yeah. you know, it was learning about them, brought them to life, but a couple who stand out kid Nichols, 19th century pitcher uh, crossing over to the 20th. The first 12 of his careers are a dead ringer for Cy Young. He's fourth all time in jaws among starting pitchers. I mean, and nobody knows about him. You know, we have the Cy Young Award. Why don't we have the Kid Nichols Award? You know, I mean, he he won more than 300 games. He just didn't have quite the longevity as as, as young. But uh, boy, he was outstanding for uh, the first half of his career. 20th century, Harry Heilman, the right fielder for the Tigers during, during uh, took over for Sam Crawford uh, during the Ty Cobb era. Won four batting titles, beating out Ruth, Gehrig, they're all Hall of Fame. Al Simmons is one of them. I'm blanking on the fourth. Two of them he won on the last day of the season by just having like big games. And he was just this, this outstanding uh, hitter who you know put up some big numbers in you know, higher offense eras, but uh, gained a great appreciation for him. And then was the first ball player to become, to become a broadcaster and was uh, very highly regarded in that role. Died of cancer in, I think it's 1951. Ty Cobb led a lobbying effort to try to have him elected to the Hall of Fame at an all-star game just before he passed away. And that was unsuccessful, but he, he was elected the next year. Um, even Ty Cobb, for, you know, I learned a lot about Ty Cobb. I was reading the, the Charles Learson book. Uh, yeah, um, we just had him on the show. Oh, awesome. yeah. I was reading that book as I was, as I was writing this, and I was struck by the magnanimity of Cobb when it came to him putting in good words for former teammates and former competitors uh, in a way that's just so different from Frankie Frisch, you know, if, and his word was taken. I mean, if he said this guy deserves to be in, you know, that guy got in and, you know, the veterans committee, you know, soon voted them in. And there's, there's like four or five of those guys. And Heilman's the one who comes to mind, but uh, that he helped get in there. Sam Crawford is his old teammate uh, uh, is another one. I, I mean, Sam Crawford had almost 3000 hits. How does he not get into the hall of fame? And Ty Cobb's like, you know, get on it guys. So, you know, that was interesting. Sam Crawford himself, uh, interesting tidbit. Um, he wanted to put together a baseball cycle encyclopedia, not realizing that one was already in existence. It's not the Big Mac that we know that's really kind of the, the, the precursor to baseball reference, but he envisioned that he would be doing the world a service by creating this baseball encyclopedia. And then he learned sheepishly that uh, it had sort of been done. This is a little nugget that I came across in, in a Sporting News article, uh, uh, taking advantage of my uh, Sabre a subscription that uh, uh, gives you access to you know more than 100 years of sporting news archives, which, man, that's the reason alone to be uh, a member. And, and I could not have done this book without without that connection. When the, when the Sabre, when the, uh, the paper of record uh, website would go down, I would just sweat bullets because you, know, you feel like that thing, if that thing ever disappears, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a different baseball. I mean, we think of the, the Hall of Fame and, particularly with like, if you were friends with Frankie Frisch, then you made the hall of fame. And it was, I mean, not only was the game. So, I mean, there were no teams West of the Mississippi before, before the 1950s, but like the game was so concentrated in New York and there was only like, you know, two or three good teams in each league at a time and only 16 teams of baseball uh, altogether. 
And nowadays there are 30 teams across the entire US and but like we've got MLB.tv and we've got baseball reference and baseball prospectus and Sabre. And so there's I mean, there's a greater access, public access to information, but there's also just a greater volume of information. And how do you, you know, sense any effect of that, I guess, on Hall of Fame debates now versus 50 years ago? Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got, you know, you've got video, you can look at you know, you can look at the highlight films uh, for some of these guys, the more the more recent candidates, and you know, relive their careers in, in that way. You can see entire games. There are a lot of Hall of Famers. We don't have a single game worth of uh, archive footage, and so we don't have any footage at all, practically, or, or almost none. It's a remarkable thing to have all of this and to have uh, so much access to so much information. I mean, we, you know, there's a risk of being pulled over by it and you know losing ourselves in it. But I think it's a great time to be having these debates because we have this information and because we have new ways of looking at it. I mean, before all you had was the batting line and, and the word of uh, uh, a guy's former competitors and, and, and teammates. And uh, those are the mistakes that we bitch about. Um, I do think uh, just as the caliber of competition is, has gotten better over time, the general caliber of candidates we elect has gotten better over time in a certain way. Um, not necessarily that we're electing guys that are the equal of Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb, but, uh, our certainty that, uh, that these are guys who measure up uh, is getting better. You know, I was doing a TV spot earlier today on on SNY, and one of the one of the uh, panelists on there, who's a voter, you know, asked me what I thought of of say the BBWAA voting during the time that we had been that I had been doing this. And I said, yeah, you know, there's there's few, definitely fewer mistakes than before, and you know, we seized upon Jim Rice as being the most questionable one, and and then uh, maybe Bruce Souter for his short career leaving aside the innovation factor for uh, his usage and uh, his uh, popularization of the, of the split-fingered fastball. But I mean, those are two I point to, but really there are not a lot of other ones that the BBWA has elected in, in the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years that uh, are anywhere near as bad as some of, the, some of their earlier choices. It's the, what maddens us is, is the ones that like, get left out, like Alan Trammell and Larry Walker and so on and so on. But the ones they get in there, they're at least getting in good ones. Mm-hmm. In your research and, and looking back through the archives, did you come across any interesting Hall of Fame debates from decades ago? I mean, were there people making smart Hall of Fame arguments? I mean, not with war or anything like that, but kind of the same concepts at least being you know, applied? You know, there was one that was interesting was that there was a there was a very grassroots campaign to get Bob Lemon in. Uh, somebody sent out a crate of lemons uh, to all these voters, <laughs> crates of lemons to all these voters, which was, you know, now you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get away with that now because there'd be so much fear that it was a terrorist act. But it was, you know, that was kind of a forerunner to the to the Bly Lemon and, and Reigns grassroots campaigns that uh, yeah. you had fans, you know, interacting with voters and trying to convince voters. I, I don't know that I, that I found too much in the way of interesting debates. I found a lot of half-assed thinking, a lot of half-assed justification comparing apples to oranges, you know, and I feel like that's that, those, those tired arguments and those, you know, apples to oranges arguments, Bill James did a lot of those in in, uh, politics of glory. And I didn't want to rehash that too much. You know, I talk about it in connection to Santo, especially in, you know, seeing some of the justifications that these guys had for leaving him off their ballots, which, oh my God, I mean, just, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, one, one uh, New York sports writer alone, Moss Klein, who's, who 
did more than most to publicize his ballots uh, in the sporting news, at least, which I had easy access to. Talked about where Santa, you know, Santa ranking in the top three or four among third basemen in in home runs and, and RBIs, and then decided his career was too short and he was living off the ballot anyway. I was like, why are you telling us? Like, you know, I mean, dumb art. And so I don't know that there were that there was a lot of debating that was going on in public in the same way that, that we have it now. There, was just, there wasn't this like open dialogue in the same way mm-hmm. because there weren't a lot of people writing about uh, their ballots and the, and the decision process. I mean, they had their two or three guys they were going to put on there and that was the end of the story and you weren't going to tell them what to do. Um, and yeah. you know, no other sports writer is going to tell them what to do. And now, you know, we've got so much more feedback and we've got, I think the voters have become more accountable and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's become, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a democracy, but it's, uh, it, it's a Republic. It's this expectation that, that, uh, uh, these voters are going to represent us and that they're accountable to us and can at least take the time to explain their choices. Even if we don't just, even if we don't agree with them, you know, they're going to take the heat where, yeah. you know, when we don't, and, you know, there's, unfortunately there's a lot of rancor attached to that. And I don't approve of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've really tried to train myself over the last uh, 15 years, uh, particularly the last five to make sure that I am not uh, increasing the level uh, of that. And uh, I'm, out, I'm out of, I'm out of the individual ballot critique business uh, myself. And that is, that, that stance has served me well. Uh, we've woken Robin. Yes, yeah. we, we have woken Robin. <laughs> Speaking of rancor, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, uh, she's had, she's had a rough few days here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even know if a, a crate of lemons would be an effective bribe for me. I I might be less likely to I vote for lemons. someone who sent me. I vote for somebody. I don't know. Anybody I, I out guess. there wants me to vote for something, send me lemons. I'll vote for it. That, then you can make a, a lemons to oranges argument. Yeah. Be a little closer anyway. That would be so good. my last question, Mariano Rivera is on the cover of the book. And I wonder whether you think that increased reliever representation, should it all be part of what you're talking about, that players from the last few decades have been underrepresented and more players today are relievers than ever before. So does that mean we should have more relievers in the Hall of Fame or is the fact that relievers are used differently from before mean that no, they, they still shouldn't be allowed in unless they are Mariano Rivera? Yeah, I think we've got, we should increase the representation to the point that we include Mariano Rivera and Trevor Hoffman and then we should, then we should probably go away for a while and, and wait until, uh, <laughs> uh, wait yeah. and see if Craig Kimbrell and Kenley Jansen can string, or, or maybe Andrew Miller can string together another 10 or 15 years that are of the caliber of their last few. You know, I think that when you look at wins of overplacement, straight wins of overplacement does not love relief pitchers. Uh, it does not see Trevor Hoffman or, or uh, Billy Wagner say as, 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 as uh, uh, anywhere close to the jaws standard at their position. Unfortunately, it's these pitchers times as starters that actually kind of boosts their, their jaw standing, including Dennis Eckersley, who's number one in the position. You know, what's remarkable about Mariano Rivera is that he's up there at number two with almost no help from a starter. I think he was below replacement level as a starter. Uh, Hoyt Wilhelm, who pitched uh, forever, uh, had a couple good years as a starter. He's number three. And then Goose Gossage, who had one solid year as a starter, is number four. When you look at the relievers, they don't do very well by this standard. But if you turn to say wins, uh, win probability added, uh, you get a you get a bit of a different picture and a little bit more clarity. Such as that uh, uh, Rivera and Trevor Hoffman are number one and number two uh, in win probability added. It's taking note of the leverage that these guys were used under 
in that, you know, they pitched in a lot of close games. Um, I'm very interested to take another look at what Nate Silver did with that goose egg stat that he, that he put out on 538, uh, really just as this book was going into production. So I couldn't even, I don't even think I was able to get a mention of it in, in, into the book, but I have tried to go outside my system, uh, in ways that I haven't elsewhere to look at, uh, ways of evaluating relievers, you know, back at BP, we had, uh, the WXRL stat, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, that I liked a lot. And then I was looking at that a lot and kind of adding that to the sauce. And I'm, st- I'm still looking, but I just don't see anybody who measures up in the same way to the relievers that are in the hall that's out there. I mean, I like Billy Wagner a lot. I think that Billy Wagner's pretty close to Trevor Hoffman, but he doesn't quite have the WPA stats. They've got the same jaws, but I can't really, you know, if I'm looking at WPA, the gap is enough that I can't really justify voting for him. And a lot of it comes down to that short career too. But uh, boy, that guy missed bats galore and was, you know, was far more dominant. And, and I think about like, wow, okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna vote for the Hall of Fame and we're gonna elect relief pitchers, let's like elect the really dominant ones. So I think about that and I think about what it's going to take to get a Craig Kimball or Henry Kenley Jansen there. I mean, I hope those guys persist. I'd love to be having this conversation about them in you know in fifteen years or whatever. But we'll see. We'll see if there's baseball around in 15 years. <laughs> you're, 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 we have to talk about that on a future podcast because you are you are very pessimistic about the future of, of the I sport. Got, <laughs> I got an in-person request the other day for an article devoted exclusively to that topic. So we'll, <laughs> okay. I don't know, maybe that's an off-season thing. <laughs> All right. Well, we have managed not to ask any questions about steroids, which is actually what you recommend in the book that Hall of Fame voters do, at least for players from from the pre-testing era. The Cooperstown casebook is currently the best-selling baseball book on Amazon. You can go help keep it there. You should go get yourself a copy. It is a good reference book to have on hand for the future, but it's not just a reference book. It is a book book that you can read cover to cover, and it's a pleasure. And there's so many baseball books out there that it's rare to have the definitive book on any one subject in baseball. But I think this has to be it for the Hall of Fame. So go check it out and read Jay at Sports Illustrated. You can find him also on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. And it is always a pleasure. So we hope that you get some rest. Hey, thanks a lot, Next time we'll have you on in like like March or something when you're not (laughs) doing 45 other radios. You guys are good because you tend to... You're smart when we do the... the annual election stuff because you guys are always the first one to ask to ask me on and like you get me ahead of the curve and I still haven't formulated my talking points but I'm also not so jaded by the process yet that uh, that, that I don't want to do it so you know I love talking to you guys uh, it's good well it's good just because we run out of ideas faster than other guys so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm gonna all right well thanks hard. Jake good talking right, thanks you. guys take care. All right, so that will do it for today. Just after we hung up with Jay and talked to him about how Adrian Beltre is a social media star, his stardom rose to new heights as he was ordered to stand in the on-deck circle. And so he took the on-deck circle with him. He picked it up and he dragged it, making eye contact with the umpire the entire time, and then stood in the on-deck circle where he had been standing before. He was ejected for this extremely entertaining stunt. Adrian Beltre is the best.
By the way, I am going to a concert tonight. I'm going to see Ringer MLB show theme writer Ben Gibbard at Town Hall in New York. I'm wondering whether I can request the Ringer MLB show theme as an encore. And if so, how many people at the Town Hall would know what he was playing? I don't know. It's a, we're a huge hit now. We're <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's a catchy tune. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who don't like baseball still like our theme song. So Yeah, that's weird. I was listening to Postal Service and... Um... Death Cab this weekend yeah. for the first time in years and just yeah, out well, of nowhere. So, so was I said hi. Not out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah. He's covering the Teenage Fan Club album, Bandwagon S, wow. which is great. It's coming out, I believe, tomorrow, the whole album. So I'm looking forward to that too. It's his favorite album of all time. Great album. One thought to leave you with in Ken Rosenthal's latest Facebook post. He wrote that Jerry DePoto, quote, in his 22 months as Mariners GM has traded like it's 1999 and the world will end on Y2K. And he has a quote, I've never gotten it, one rival executive says. It feels like he has made 348 trades to turn a 500 team into a 500 team. Untrue rival executive. The Mariners are actually a 495 team. They're a game under 500. Regardless, we are pro DePoto trades on this podcast. All right. Well, you have been listening to the Ringer MLB show, part of the vast, all-encompassing Ringer Podcast Network. We will actually be back on Tuesday next week instead of our regular Monday slot, just because we want to be able to talk about trade deadline stuff when it is relatively fresh. So we will wait for those deals to go down, and then we will be in your ears, most likely Tuesday morning. So until then, talk to you then, Michael. See ya. said it before and I'll say it again. Don't let scratches be the end of your sunglasses. Save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with Revent Optics. Revent Optics offers high quality replacement lenses for any brand starting at just $24. With over 500,000 customers worldwide and an average rating of 99.7%, Revent Optics guarantees incredible clarity and a perfect fit or your money back. So get 20% off your first order with code MLB at reventoptics.com MLB. Again, that's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com MLB.